Good morning. The, uh, this morning's reading is from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 1, and then 5 through 15. Jesus called to his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person. Stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. The word of the Lord. Well, when I arrived in Dallas, Texas, about 10 years ago to attend seminary, part of the seminary's quota to let a few old people into their programs every year, um, I came to Dallas Seminary partly because they had a spiritual formation program. And one of the first people I met in my seminary journey was our guest speaker today, Dr. Steneric Armitage. At the time, he was the director of the Department of Spiritual Formation, and I had somehow been flagged for special attention as someone, someone who needed extra help. And so um, <clears throat> Sten and I went and had coffee because one thing you need to know about Sten is that uh, he knows where all the best coffee shops in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and probably other parts of the world exist. Um, and so, uh, but I was struck, and we made uh, an immediate friendship and I think part of it, because we had some common background uh, in the military, but also um, because Sten really struck me as someone who is um, sincere, vulnerable, and honest. And as we got together and, and shared a little bit about our life stories, I thought, this is somebody who I can uh, connect with on a deeply personal uh, level. And so he figured, importantly, in my own spiritual and academic journey through my years at Dallas Seminary. Uh, Stan is now a professor of pastoral ministries um, and spiritual formation, um, and he is very passionate about theology, how to live our lives Christianly as disciples, and he's a, a perfect speaker today, not only for his gifts and talents, but certainly because uh, of the passage uh, that we're covering. He's married to his wife, Lisa, who's here with him. He has five adult daughters, four of whom are here. He's about to be a granddad. He told me there's a baby shower in their future this afternoon. Um, and, um, and Sten is also, so you know, he's, he's a pastor. He's been on many church staffs um, and uh, is a man who is, is passionate about shepherding the hearts of people. And so it's, it's our great privilege, Sten, to have you here today, and, and, and what a blessing it is to, to have you preach to us. And so would you all join me in welcoming Dr. Steneric Armitage. Thanks, 
He is risen. Amen. He's still risen. Easter was last week, but doesn't it seem like it was months ago? But it's just as true today as it was last week. And it's going to be just as true six months from now as it was last week. This is the hope that we live in. He is risen. That was a test. That was a test. Well, I am not known to many of you here, which means it is safe for me to embarrass myself publicly by sharing a story with you that my own family hasn't heard. So this is, this is a risk. I'm a theologian now, right? And theologians deal with tricky things that sometimes don't make a lot of sense. This is going to be important in the story in a second. I'll come back to it. Math has never been a strong suit for me. My, my first year of high school, I took Algebra 1. And then, like many, my second year of high school, I took Algebra 1. <laughs> then my third year of high school, I took Essentials of Mathematics, which my teacher also called Essentials of Counting. It was the basics, and I survived that one. Now, that whole math thing marked me. So now as a, a theologian, a day is a thousand years. That makes sense. The, the doctrine of the Trinity, an area where I have, have academically and devotionally given much of my life. We worship one God who eternally exists in three persons, yet not three gods, but one. That's horrible math. Beautiful theology. Deeply true. So my senior year of high school, when Miss Larson came and said, Sten, we want you to serve on the math team as our fourth chair. I just, I, I laughed. Miss Larson, do you remember me from Essentials of Counting? I, I barely got the smallest number. I think that's what you call those things, right? In, in the course, the class. Just trust me, I, I want you on the math team. And so I joined the math team, and I was way out of my depth. Uh, the other three, they knew things like integers and sine waves and quadratic equations and other mysteries of the universe that man dare not tread into. And she would be asking questions and writing up formulae, and they would be answering them. And I'm just like, those are squiggly lines in a foreign language that make no sense. I had no idea why I was on the math team. I was way out of my league. I think we've all been there, right? You found yourself in a place where you felt overwhelmed, underqualified, out of your depth, and unable to reach anything. Maybe it was in a job where you're promoted into a new position and you were sitting there at the table with the other people on your team and you had no idea what you were doing. Or you find yourself in a relationship and you thought the communication was going well and then you realize, I don't even think I know this person and I don't know how to know this person. It's, it's a hopeless feeling to feel like, I don't belong here. It's a mistake for me to be here. Sitting in that fourth chair of the math team, I just had the wide open eyes and attempted to look intelligent when I was barely able to do basic addition. It's a scary place to be. And this morning, as we look at Matthew chapter 10, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up there. I'll be going back and forth to the text that was read for us and some other places in the chapter. We see a picture of discipleship. 
And we see the 12 disciples, the original 12 disciples, and we're given a model of discipleship. And it can be intimidating. It can be overwhelming, particularly what we didn't hear this morning. Verse 17, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. That doesn't sound like a good time. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. There's a picture of discipleship and a scary consequence of discipleship. And so I don't know about you, but sitting there in the pews, walking the Christian life, saying, I am a follower of Jesus, sometimes it's harder for us to say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm not qualified for that. I, don't, I didn't go to seminary. And some of you maybe did go to seminary and are still thinking, I'm not qualified for that. Imposter syndrome is a real thing. Well, this morning, we are going to look at this daunting call to discipleship. And we're going to seek to answer the question, how in the world can any of us faithfully and consistently follow Jesus in the way that he has called us to do? And this is a wonderful text to introduce us to this concept, not of discipleship, but of the intimidating realities of discipleship. So first, I want to start by looking at these 12. And then what is the context of this passage, and and how does it relate to us sitting here this morning at Trinity Fellowship? And then finally, what are the principles that we can derive from this to actually step into this daunting call? So first, let's look at these men. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority. 12 disciples who gave them authority. It's important for us to recognize they didn't have any authority of their own. The the authority that they had was the authority that was on loan. It was on loan. It was Jesus' authority that he gave to them. So as they went out, two by two, to do this ministry that they're called to do, they're not doing it in their own strength. They're not doing it because they have the right to do these things. They're doing it because Jesus has given them his authority to do these things. That's a spoiler alert for where we're going in the text. The names of the 12 apostles. You notice that? Verse 1, the 12 disciples. Now verse 2, the 12 apostles. Why is he naming these 12 men here? Is is it so that we can have trivia contests and, and memorize these 12 names? You want to humble a seminary student? You want to humble a seminary professor? Say, hey, can you name the 12 disciples for me? It's a challenge, as we're going to see in a second. We're given these 12 men. We're giving these 12 names for a very specific theological reason. We heard Ezekiel 34, one of my favorite passages from the prophets, where the prophet of God is calling out the corrupt, wicked, and lost leadership of Israel who lost sight of their mission to care for others, to do justice, to be merciful, to provide And he's saying, y'all are wicked shepherds. You are going to face the consequences, and I will shepherd my sheep. And now here's Jesus, hundreds of years later, saying, all right, you twelve. Twelve. Just like the twelve tribes of Israel. You twelve. I'm giving you authority. I'm giving you authority because the current leadership of Israel is lost. They're living in the negative side of Ezekiel 34. 
and I am their shepherd, and I will provide for them, and I will care for them. And this is the authority he gives. Now, these, these names, these 12 names, Paul says in Ephesians 2.20 that it's on these apostles that Jesus built the church. So, man, these are giants. These are heroes of the faith. The first, Simon, who was called Peter. You remember him, right? He, he denied Jesus three times, put his foot in his mouth often, challenged Jesus' teaching in Jesus' face. You remember him? Yeah, that, that hero of the faith. And Andrew, his brother. Oh, yeah, Andrew. You all remember Andrew. That mentioned twice, briefly. Followed John the Baptist. Listened to John the Baptist, started following Jesus, and said, hey, Pete, I want you to meet this teacher. Ended Andrew's narrative. James, the son of Zebedee. Not, not James, the one who wrote the epistle, James. Just James, the son of Zebedee. That's all I got. John, his brother. What do we know about John? Well, he's a good writer. We have some of his writing. We also know that he's faster than Peter. In the Gospel of John, he highlights that, that he beat Peter in the foot race to announce the resurrection. Philip and Bartholomew. This isn't Philip that, in Acts, shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. That's a different Philip. This is the Philip who... Right. Philip and Bartholomew. Remember Bartholomew? That's one of the names that often gets forgetten when, forgotten when people are going through that list. Thomas. And what is Thomas famous for? Doubt. I, I want to say, of this list of names, Thomas is my hero. He doubted. Don't we all? But then proclaimed most clearly who Jesus was, my Lord and my God, the strongest affirmation. But we know him as Thomas the Doubter. And Matthew the tax collector, the tax collector, he is sided with the Romans, the ones who are oppressing us. The reason we need a Messiah, the Jewish people are thinking. Matthew has sided with them. James the son of Alphaeus, James the lesser, James the small, James that we don't know anything else about, James and Thaddeus. Y'all remember the disciple Thad. Simon the Cananean, uh, also called Simon the Zealot. So we have Matthew, the tax collector, siding with the imperial government, siding with Rome. And then we have Simon the Zealot, not of a political party, it didn't really exist yet, but the one who was against the government, calling for people to resist the government, calling for people to overthrow the government. These two traveled together with Jesus for years, side by side. Matthew the tax collector, Simon the insurrectionist. That's a sermon for another day. But other than that, we don't know much about the Simon. And then we do know quite a bit about the last disciple, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So why are we given these names? We're given these names for a couple of different reasons. One, as I said, Jesus is demonstrating how he is going to replace the corrupt teachers of Israel with his disciples, those who are operating in his authority, these who are going to be his under-shepherds. Two, who are they? The, the highest on the social ladder in this list are the fishermen. And in that society, fishermen weren't very high up the social ladder. They were unlearned and ignorant. Yet these are the twelve. The one who doubts two who betray, the one who runs, the ones who get lost in the pages of history. These are the twelve. 
Throughout Scripture, God uses ordinary, broken, flawed people to accomplish his purposes. One of his favorite building materials for building up his church has been warped and twisted pieces of wood. So when we think about the daunting call of discipleship, and man, I could never be like one of the twelve. Look at the twelve. He called ordinary, humble men. Your, your very fear of being a disciple is one of the primary qualifications for being a disciple. You, you don't need credentials. You don't need great learning. You don't need superpowers. You need, and this is very difficult, to show up. So y'all are already well on the road to the path of discipleship because you're here. Faithfulness is what's asked for, not competence. They're operating under Jesus' authority, not their own. And another reason, a third reason. This is a tricky passage. How many of you, as it was being read, thought, I wonder what he's going to do with that? This is a tough passage. This is given to, these names are given to us so we see who is Jesus talking to. And, and this takes us to the, the context point that I want to make. Uh, a basic uh, Bible study methods principle of interpretation. We often approach the text of Scripture with the existential question. What does this have to say to me? That's a good question, but it's not the right question. Rather, we should approach the text what was being said to those to whom it was being said? Who is this written to? And sometimes we can see it is written to us. For example, in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying for his disciples, he make it, makes it clear he's not just praying for these men in the garden with him. He's praying for us. He's praying for the disciples who will follow them. It's clear in the context. This is for all of us. So John 17 is speaking to you, to me. But here, he is talking to these twelve. This is a unique situation in a unique time, and these men have been given a unique authority, an authority that is on loan. This is written to them. Uh, Jerome, the great church father from the fourth century, uh, he said that the question we need to ask when we're looking at this type of a text is to, who is it, to whom is it written? And we need to answer it plainly and say, Strictly to them it was said. So, for example, I'm wearing shoes. Uh, one interpretation of this passage is, as one who is preaching the gospel, one who is proclaiming the message of the kingdom, I, I shouldn't have a walking... I was going to bring a walking stick this morning, and then I decided not to. Uh, I need to not have a walking stick, not have shoes, and go into a life of austere poverty. That's not exactly what he's telling these men there. But it's certainly not what he's telling us now. So we need to recognize first the uniqueness of the situation, the, the apostolic calling. These twelve, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Okay, now if this is for all those who are proclaiming the kingdom today, none of us most, I'm assuming most of us, at least, should not be in this room. Because he's saying, don't go there. Where are they supposed to go? Go, rather, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Do you hear Ezekiel 34 now? The lost sheep. This wasn't a small group of Israelites that Jesus was talking about. He was talking about the Jewish people. 
all of them. And he is calling the disciples to go out and speak to them. Don't go, don't go north through Samaria. Don't head out in the directions of the Gentiles. They only had one direction to go, Galilee. And proclaim this message to the lost sheep of Israel. There's no contradiction here with the Great Commission. Doesn't the Great Commission say to go to all the world? Yeah, it sure does. This is a text where he's speaking to these disciples in this season of his public ministry. And he is having the disciples model what Jesus has done. His ministry was to the Jewish people. But if we keep reading and we jump down to uh, chapter 10, verse 24, I think. No, this is why you should write things down. Uh, somewhere in this pericope that we're looking at, uh, it's very clear that it is going to be given to the Gentiles, to the world. But right now, in this season, these men, these twelve, they are to go. Oh, verse 18. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and who? The Gentiles. The days are coming when the gospel will go further. But right now, let's focus on the lost sheep of Israel. This is the same thing that Paul said in Romans 1.16, that we are going to proclaim the gospel first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. So I'm harping on this because I want to make the point. To them only, this was said. So does that mean this morning I'm wasting my time and we shouldn't talk about this passage? No. No. What that means is this is not a prescription for how a disciple is to do the ministry of proclaiming the kingdom. It's not a prescription. It's a description of what these men were called to do. And from that description, we can look and see, well, how, how does that speak to me right now? Well, one of the things that we see as we're going through this passage is that, what about getting paid? What about money? How are things going to be provided? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold nor silver nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey. In this exact period of time, we have another ancient piece of literature that's not in our Bibles, but was used by the early church. It's called the Didache, and it's a manual for ministry. We, we think it was likely written by Mark, but we're not sure. It's not scripture. It's not inspired. It's a useful piece of instruction on how to do church. And in chapters 11 and 12 of the Didache, if you're bored and you want to read this later in your spare time, it talks about the mercenary preachers. Those who were going from town to town proclaiming the gospel and taking money and, and becoming rich through the gospel. Does this sound familiar? Is this a problem that existed only in the first century? Now, there's, there's a description being given here. A description of how to carry yourself as a minister of the gospel, as a disciple, that is not like these who are corrupting the message. Plans. Uh, planes, rather. Planes, prosperity, platforms. That's, that's not here. Nowhere they said, don't worry about how you're going to go from town to town. You're going to have your own private jet that you'll be able to use, uh, so you don't need to worry about flying coach. Uh, you know, y'all are going to become famous. You are going to have a gospel platform that is going to be known around the world. Thaddeus, remember Thaddeus? You probably forgot him already. I love the fact that these disciples largely have faded into obscurity, but their testimony is the reason that we're sitting in this room 2,000 years later. Faithfulness. 
showing up. So if it's not written to us, what can we learn from it? If it's not written to us, but rather it's written for us, what are some principles on how we can be faithful disciples? We who look at the idea of discipleship and think, I'm the fourth chair on a math team and I don't know how to divide. How do we keep going? Well, one principle, don't shrink under the weight. You're not carrying the kingdom on your shoulders. You know who's carrying the kingdom on his shoulders? It's Jesus. His shoulders can bear that weight. You, you don't need to bear it. As I said earlier, it's not credentials or superpowers that qualify you to be a disciple. Uh, again, Jerome, when he talks about these 12, he says that the, the church of God was built on the testimony of a bunch of illiterate rustics. And here we are. This morning, as you cross the time zones, in a little bit, we're going to be remembering, remembering our Savior as he commanded us to do, and we will be joining in with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of fellow believers doing the same thing 2,000 years later because of these illiterate, bottom-of-the-social-ladder, forgettable men. Because it's not about you, and it's not about them. It's about him. It's about the one who has risen. Another principle that we can learn from this passage, when we look at these passages about you receive without paying, give without pay, acquire no gold, the gospel is not for our profit. Rather, we are to be prophets of the gospel. We should not be gaining advantage because we are Christians representing Christ in a world that desperately needs to know him. We should be representing Christ in a world that desperately needs to know him because that's what the world desperately needs. It's not to pad our pockets. It's not to increase our reputation. Verse 8, if we look at the Greek, which I'm not going to torture you with at the moment, but it's much shorter than it is in our English translations. It's expanded out. It's a very tight set of words. And you've heard it. Freely you have given. Freely you have received. So freely give. That's it. Freely given, freely give. That's what you have received without pay, give without expectation. It's that idea. We have riches in Christ because of grace alone. We should proclaim Christ, we should proclaim Christ in the same way. Not expecting anything. So does this mean that we should stop paying our pastors, our ministry staff, our missionaries? Yes. Sorry, Mike. All right, so this is, uh, no, no, that is not, this is not written for, to us, it's written for us. We are not to proclaim the gospel so we can become rich. Money should not be the obstacle, the aim, the goal. It's rather a call to put first things first. The idea of uh, no sandals, no staff. Again, if, if we look at the context and we look at the, the Greek itself, the verb there has the picture of Take. So don't, don't take a pair of sandals. Don't, don't take a staff. Don't take these things with you because they will be provided for you because you will seek out that house and those who are worthy will welcome you in and you will be given shelter and you will be given food and you might be given money for your expenses along the way, but that's not why you do it. In other words, the call is more important than our comfort. It's not about our pockets and growing in our money. It's, you know what? What I have is enough. The call is urgent. What Jesus is saying to these disciples is, go, now. Don't go home and grab your sandals. Don't grab your extra staff. Don't grab your extra stuff. Go. 
and you will be taken care of. And they were taken care of. They were provided for. These homes that were worthy. That the mission is more important than the need. I should be thinking about those I am called to share the gospel with and not, well, what about me as I'm sharing the gospel? He will take care of his own. This is the second discourse of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. The first one you know as the Sermon on the Mount. And you remember, he said, do not be anxious about anything. Don't worry about the clothes you're going to wear. I got you, paraphrase. I got you. Go. You will have housing. You will have shelter. You will have your needs met. So when I look at this room, there are some of you who are called to a life of gospel proclamation. And there are others of you who are called to a life of faithful discipleship following the teachings of our Savior. This applies to all of us. We need to be above reproach in regards to money. For those who are going out with the gospel, well, you you need to steward the resources that you're given well and rely on God to provide for you, often through people, but rely on God to provide for you. For those of us who are not called to that full-time vocational gospel proclamation, uh, we need to be above reproach in regards to money. Does your giving reflect the importance of the mission? Now, I'm a guest preacher, so I can talk about money. It makes the, the, the home pastors uncomfortable to do it, but I'm here as a guest, so I can talk about it. It's a good discipleship question. Does your giving reflect the importance You say, oh, this is the most important thing in my life is Jesus Christ. The most important thing in my life is to see the gospel lived out and proclaimed through me and his disciples. Does your pocketbook reflect that? Now, one thing to note. Goers, those who are going to proclaim, they need to give. And they need to give faithfully. Those who are not called to go, so they're primarily giving They also need to go. The the work of proclaiming the gospel, the work of proclaiming the kingdom, is not just for pastors. It's for Christians. It's not optional. Well, Spineric, I I have the gift of hospitality. I I, I have the gift of teaching, but I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I don't need to do that. No, that's right. You may not have the gift of evangelism, but you have the responsibility to evangelize. This is for all of us. Another principle, cultivate character. Cultivate character that commends Christ. See, if we're making gain, whether it's reputation or financial, the main thing, what is being commended? Me. Look at me. Pay me. Acknowledge me. Platform me. Expand my influence. It's all about me. No, we want to cultivate character that commends Christ. We want nothing to get in the way. So as a ministry principle, when I look at this text and I look at this idea of we must decrease so that he must increase, well then, the worker does deserve his wages, Matthew goes on to say. So so how do we pay our missionaries? How do we support our missionaries? How do we support our pastors? How do we support the church? Here's, Here's a principle, not a clear teaching from the text. We don't want to pay so much that it gets in the way of the gospel. What is being commended? The work of the ministry or the one we're pointing to? 
wow, he must have a successful ministry. He's driving a Bentley, has two jets and four houses. I think he's getting paid too much is what I think. We need to pay our missionaries and our pastors enough that they don't need to worry about a thing and they can focus on the work of ministry. But we shouldn't pay them so much that they lose sight of the one upon whom they desperately depend every single moment. We need to cultivate character that commends Christ. Verse 16, one further than was read for us. Behold, he says to his disciples, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Yay. This is one of the reasons why that call to discipleship is so intimidating. Yes, let me go out as a defenseless, helpless animal among the carnivorous, ravenous beasts. That sounds like a good day. It's terrifying. Yet, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, that, that innocent, the, the, the context, the connotation of that is, is unmixed, that there is purity of intention. That as a disciple, I want to look like Jesus. And that's what it means. A disciple is a follower. A, a disciple is one who is following and saying, I want to follow my Savior so closely. I want to follow my teacher so closely that I start to look like him. So I start to live like him. I start to talk like him. I start to love the things that he loves. I start to hate the things that he hates. I start to preach the things he preaches. I want to be a little Christ. That's what Christian means. This is what discipleship is. I, I want to follow this one. Purity of intention. Innocence. Not, I want to proclaim the gospel so that I can have a successful publishing ministry and my name can be known. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. Purity of intention. And that expression, that we, we, it's become... Uh, common in, in speech around the world. You know, well, you need to be shrewd. You need to be shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove. Well, shrewdness, shrewdness by itself leads to deception and manipulation. This, this innocence implies a sense of gullibility. Uh, one commentator uh, put it this way, alone, shrewdness produces evil. Alone, simplicity results in gullibility. But together, they produce the spirit that enabled the early church to successfully storm the citadels of sin. So we need to become sheep. Sheep who rely entirely for their food, for their provision, for their safety, for their peace. They completely trust their shepherd. Without their shepherd, they're utterly lost. We need to become like sheep amongst those wolves, but we need to become shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, rather than what Craig Blomberg says we often do. In fact, we more often invert the two, proving to be as guilty as ser serpents and as stupid as doves. Let's not be stupid doves and guilty serpents, but instead try to look like our teacher. And so that takes us to the fourth and I think most significant principle that applies to us as disciples today from this text. Proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and persist under persecution. Jesus repeatedly told his disciples, and he tells them here, persecutions are coming. This is not going to be easy. Now, one of the mistakes that we have in discipleship is, yeah, sign me up for that whole Christianity thing. I'm going to learn principles on how to better manage my money. I'm going to have better relationships. I'm going to 
Discipleship is the call to take up your cross and die daily. To deny yourself, to put yourself at risk. Right now, we are living in a country where we are free to gather like this and to worship as we see fit by the grace of God. For now. We have no idea how long that will be. But I do have a question. Proclaim the gospel. Persist under persecution. How's the persecution going? When you look at your life and you say, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm following him. Where in your life do you feel that tension with family, with co-workers, with society as a whole, where you're feeling that weight or that pressure or that marginalization or that rejection because you're a Christian? Do you, do you have any sense of that persecution? And if not, why not? What would it look like to live lives proclaiming the kingdom to where those who stand against our teacher want to see us fall? I'm not making a great sales pitch here, but for me it's a convicting question. Am I aware of persecution because of my standing up for the kingdom of God and representing my teacher, my Savior, Jesus Christ? And if not, then why not? Am I not living the gospel rightly? Am I not proclaiming the gospel faithfully? That said, the gospel offends enough. You are a sinner, and there's only one way to salvation. And we are going to remember that this morning. That's an offensive message, my friends. The gospel offends enough. Not Let us not add to that offense by the way that we proclaim the kingdom. I'm sure that you've heard those who are proclaiming the kingdom in a way that is arrogant and offensive, unnecessarily so. No, may we beautifully represent the teachings of the gospel. So, to close, which, you know, means there's 20 minutes left. No. So what do we do? Sitting here in this room, Sunday morning, Trinity Fellowship, what do we do? How, how do I live out this text? Do I, do I set out on a journey, uh, generally eastward, with no sandals and no walking stick and no cash? Is that the application this morning from this text? No. Again, it was written to them. It's written for us. Here's the message for us this morning. Proclaim the gospel by going and giving. Proclaim the gospel by going and and giving. Wow, that's scary. I, I don't know if I'm up for this. Good, you're not. I'm not. Ask Lisa this morning. I am not qualified to preach this morning. I am not ready. I can't do this. She's right, I can't. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the work. And praise God for that. So proclaim the gospel by going and giving. So I was on the math team. For some mysterious reason, Miss Larson put me on the math team. Here's what I didn't know. Two things. One, she needed four team members in order to enter meets. And no one else was signing up. And I needed to get a passing grade in her class. <laughs> I found that out later. But here's the other thing. She knew something about me that I did not know about myself. Growing up in the 70s and 80s, we didn't have home computers, right? That was later that computers started entering into most homes. Well, my older brother and my father were IT professionals. And so when I was very young, in the late 70s, we had a TI-99-4A. 
and it was a computer with no gaming capacities. And I learned how to code on that computer. And then we got an IBM, an 8088. And I learned how to, to manage an operating system before operating systems were easy. I, I learned these things, and I just had fun. And I was making completely useless little programs through coding, but I understood computers. No one else at my school understood computers. We had only just started a computer skills class my senior year of high school because the school was donated three computers. So it just started. Miss Larson was the teacher. And so I'm sitting there, useless on the math team. And then a question, something simple like, uh, what does Fortran stand for? Ding! Formula translator. I know that. It's a computer thing. It's not math. I was doing math. I was just doing it in a different way. She knew this. I had been shaped by my home. I had been shaped by my father to be the type of student that Miss Larson needed on her math team because the other three didn't know anything about computers and technology. I knew nothing about math, but I knew a lot about computers and technology. Proclaim the gospel by going and giving. As a disciple, you are being shaped by your teacher. You are being shaped by the Holy Spirit. I pray that today, as a result of our time together, hearing the word of God read, gathering together around this table, remembering our Savior, that the Holy Spirit is working in us so we walk out of this sanctuary looking a little bit more like Jesus than we did when we walked in. You are being shaped. You are being shaped to be able to be qualified to sit on that fourth chair of the team. Not because of anything you've done, not because of any skills you possess, but because of what the Spirit is doing in you, conforming you into the image of the Son for the glory of the Father. Proclaim the gospel by going and giving. Friends, all I'm asking you to do this morning is show up. Show up. God is sufficient. Proclaim the gospel by going, by giving. Trust Him to do the rest. Would you pray with me? Our mysterious and beautiful triune God, we gather together in this place to worship you. Because you alone are worthy of our worship. We don't worship you because of what you've given us. We don't worship you because of what you've done for us. We worship you because you, as you are, as was said a moment ago, this eternal God who exists as three persons, yet one in nature. You are worthy of our worship. You alone are good. In fact, you are goodness. You alone are just. In fact, you are perfect justice. So we worship you this morning. But we also thank you. We thank you that we could not out the grace that you have shown us through your Son. There is no sin, there is no past, so dark and so lost that it is beyond the saving grace of our Savior. We thank you for the message of the gospel. The message that you have given us life through your Son, and not just life now, but life into eternity and perfect fellowship with one another and even more beautifully with you. So I pray this morning as we prepare to remember the cost that was paid so that we might have life, that this would be a joyous occasion because we celebrate the one who is risen. The gospel did not die on the cross. Our Savior rose from the dead and he is the firstborn of many. We pray for him to return 
soon, even this morning. But if that is not your will, I pray that we would proclaim the kingdom of God through our going, through our giving, through our walking, through our worship. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.